Hey, Crowd family, I'm so glad you can join us today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 5. Chapter 5, that's our text today, the whole chapter. We're now in part 5 of our series, The Providence and Sovereignty of the Unseen King. In last week's text, chapter 4, the focus was on Mordecai's request and Esther's response. And so let's do a quick review here. After Mordecai heard about this genocidal decree to destroy the Jews, he, he tore his clothes uh, dressed in rags, put ashes on his head, and he mourned openly and publicly. And he did this as far as the king's gate, hoping that someone from the palace would take notice of him and get the message to Queen Esther. Well, uh, he succeeded. Look at verse 4. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Now remember, she knows nothing of this edict to destroy the Jews. She's absolutely clueless because she's totally separated uh, from what's happening outside of the palace. Now the fact that Mordecai refused the clothes that she sent him tells her that something serious is happening here. And this gave Mordecai the opportunity to get his message to uh, Queen Esther. So Queen Esther summoned Hathak, remember him? Hathak to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. And so uh, Hathak goes to Mordecai, and Mordecai tells him everything uh, that happened to him. And the text says he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her, urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Well, that's easier said than, said than done because in Persia, no one, including the king, uh, could go before the king without a personal invitation. Anybody who ventured uh, to go into the presence of the king without being invited could be killed right on the spot. So Esther would not only be breaking royal protocol, but she would also be risking her life. And Mordecai, Mordecai uh, is putting or was putting Esther in a position where she could lose her life. And she's simply saying, Mordecai, you don't understand what you're asking me to do. And if I go there, Mordecai, if I go there and the king doesn't want to see me, I'll be put to death even though I'm the queen. Think about what you're asking me to do, Mordecai. And Mordecai simply tells Esther, it's time for you to put it all on the line. And what he does, he calls for courage. And look at verses 12 through 14, verses 12 through 14 of chapter 4. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. Let's read verse 14a. For if you remain silent at this time, listen now, if you don't say anything, Esther, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. That's God's providence. But you and your father's family will perish. In other words, Esther, don't think that your position or privilege exempts you from what's going to happen. And just because you're the queen, you're not out of trouble. And if you don't do something, Esther, if you don't help us, Esther, God is able to help us from some other source. God will deliver us another way, but you yourself could be destroyed. You probably won't survive, Esther. Look at verse 14b. And again, this is a very famous, well known quotation in the book of Esther. Mordecai says, And who knows but that you have come 
to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, hey, Queen Esther, God put you there for such a time as this to position, say say position, to position you for this very moment. All of that training and all that you went through, it happened so that you would be the instrument God would use to deliver his people. And you see, friends, Esther was placed in position for a spiritual reason, not merely for personal benefit. Then Queen Esther says to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. Now I want to stop there and I need to say this because I should have said this last week, but it slipped my mind. You shouldn't fast if it presents a health risk to you. Okay, so we just want to make sure you're you're safe and you're healthy. So be very careful. Well, Esther says, when this is done, the three-day fasting and praying, she says, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, remember this? She says, I, what? Perish. This is trustful submission to the will of God. And I believe Esther is saying, I will do God's will, whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. And you see, she presented herself as a living sacrifice. And I love this to God's will, and she was willing to lay her life on the line to do what was right for her people. Then verse 17 of chapter 4, So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So he gathered the Jews together and proclaimed a three-day fast. So so follow me here. Between chapters 4 and 5, between chapters 4 and 5, there's a pause. There's, There's a pause. Three days just a lot of fasting and a lot of praying. Uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll called those three days a silent but powerful parenthesis in Esther's life. This now brings us to today's text. The title of my message today is Timing is Everything. Say that. Timing is everything. Five points from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, if you're ready, say yes. Number one is this, the fearlessness. Write that down, the fearlessness. And then we look at verse 1. And the text says, on the third day, and I want to stop there because they fasted and prayed for how many days? Three days. So this event would coincide, get this now, coincide with the third day. And remember, it was also, it, it, it has also been 33 days, 33 days since the king has seen Esther. Now, now, now fasting probably wouldn't have helped her physical appearance in the natural, but it would spiritually. It would spiritually. So on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. So she changes her apparel and and she uh, carefully prepares herself to face the king. Let's read on. And stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. So Esther is fearless, right? She's fearless. and she, she shows great courage in her willingness, listen now, to come before the king without being summoned. Now remember what she said back in verse 16b of the previous chapter. She says, I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. In other words, I will do God's will whatever the cost, Right? 
And even if it cost her her life, she would do whatever she can to protect her people. Now this took, listen, now this took great courage because the king didn't have a good reputation for treating his queens well. And so to approach the king was extremely difficult and filled with, with danger because Esther has, listen now, Esther has to break the law in which the penalty for doing so is death. Esther also has to admit that she has been deceiving the king about her ethnic background for five years. Also, Esther has to persuade the proud king to effectively excuse me, reverse an irreversible law. In doing so, he will lose a huge amount of promised revenue. Also, Esther has to oppose and overcome one of the most cunning and powerful foes in Persia, Haman. So she has great courage here. She's fearless. Now, 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 I want you to understand some interesting, this is interesting, is that notice the paradox. Back in chapter 1, get this now, back in chapter 1, the king summons for Queen Vashti to come before him, and she doesn't come. And here in chapter 5, the king doesn't summon Queen Esther, and she does come. You see the paradox? That's interesting, isn't it? Point number two, point number two. Number one is the fearlessness. Point number two is the favor. Write that down, say that, the, the favor. The fearlessness. And point number two is the favor. If you're still with me, say amen. Look at verse two. When he saw Queen Esther, the king, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. In other words, she found favor in his sight and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand, in his hand. And I want to stop there. Remember, whoever approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one, has but one law, that that person be what? Put to death. And the only exception to this for the king to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to that person and spare his or her life. Now let's look at the text again. And held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So, so by doing this, the king spares the queen's life, right? But we must never, now I gotta get this, we must never overlook that the king's heart is in the hand of God. And God, listen now, directed the king's heart that in turn moved the king's hand to extend the gold scepter to Queen Esther. How awesome is that? Good place to say amen. Now I want you to imagine the scene. Queen Esther comes in and is standing in the court and you have the men surrounding the king getting ready to draw their swords. And in that moment, until the king pulled out the gold scepter, these men were ready at the king's command to put her to death. But God moved. Say, God moved. And God directed the king's heart. You know what this is? This is Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1. The King James Bible renders it like this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Listen, like, like seeing a river going downstream, imagine the hand of God 
directing the king's heart. And you know what? God holds both the life of Esther and the king in his hand. And I want to tell you, friends, no king, not Pharaoh, not Nebuchadnezzar, not, not, not Cyrus, not Darius, not Belshazzar, not Xerxes, or Artaxerxes has ever intimidated the one and only true Almighty God or frustrated his purposes. You see, King Xerxes may rule Persia, but God will show that he is really the ruler of all and in complete control. Amen. Let's read on. Let's read on. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. I'm going to read that again. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So, so you got to wonder what was going through her mind right at that moment. And we have to believe that she knew that God had given her favor in the king's eyes that the king would extend the gold scepter to her. So she touched the scepter, right? And she what? She lived. Now, that being said, I want to say this. God extended the cross of Jesus Christ to the world. And whoever reaches out in faith and touches and receives his son, who died on that cross-shaped scepter, will live eternally. Don't you love that? I love that. Verse 3, Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, he says, it will be given you. Now, this is typical royal hyperbole. He's obviously exaggerating here, but he must have been wowed, wowed by her beauty and by her presence. What is your request, my queen, he tells her. Well, Esther doesn't want half the kingdom or any of the kingdom. She just wants the safety and the protection of her people. And in order to accomplish this, she asks the king for, which brings us to point number three, is the feast. The feast. The feast. Plural, the feast. Write that down, number three, the feast. And look at verse four with me. Esther says, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Now, why didn't Queen Esther just say, I want you to kill Haman, and by the way, I'm a Jew, and I need you to counteract your decree to kill all the Jews? Why didn't she say that? She could have. She could have played on his emotions. She could have manipulated him or could have gotten anxious and acted in haste, but she didn't. And praise God, she didn't. You see, Queen Esther was wise, say wise, and waited on God. I'm going to say it again. Queen Esther was wise, say wise, and waited, say waited, on God. And she realized there's a, a sense of timing involved here. And perhaps God just told her to plan a banquet. And you know, God usually gives us one step at a time, right? He never lays out the whole plan before us. You know why? Because we couldn't handle it. We'd freak out. He has to reveal it to us one step at a time. And at this time, he tells Esther to plan a banquet. 
And so she requested a banquet while the king had to do what he offered to do, right? Verses 5 and 6. If you're still with me, say, Amen. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. Verse 6. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is it? What is now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. He tells that again, tells her that again. Her response, verses 7 through 8. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. Verse 8. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow. Say tomorrow, because that's key. Tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then, she says, then I will answer the king's question. So she simply said, can we do this thing again tomorrow? So, so this begs the question, why did Esther request for a second banquet? Why? It's a good question, right? Why? Well, was she having second thoughts? Was she losing heart? Was she losing courage? Was she shrinking in fear? Nope. Nope. In fact, this is not fear. Get this now. This is wisdom. Say wisdom. Don't forget, Esther and all the Jews fasted and prayed for three days. You don't think that they heard from God? Of course they did. And so she heard from God, and she was on the receiving end from the wisdom from above. And you see, she had the wisdom. Say wisdom. You got to get that. She had, she had the wisdom to know that the timing wasn't right. And what God did, God put it on her heart to wait. To wait one more day, Esther. Just, just wait one more day. And remember, God not only orders our steps, but also our stops. And God is never early and never late. He's always on what? Time. And so here we see divine providence working to delay, as chapter 6 will be significant in highlighting God's sovereign power. God, listen, is working behind the scenes and setting everything up that very night. Timing is everything. Say that. Timing is everything. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 7b, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 7b, Solomon writes and says this. He says, there's a time to be quiet and a time to speak. So Esther had the wisdom to not say anything at this time. So two lessons here. Okay, and I want you to follow me here. Two lessons. The first lesson is this. Ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. James 1.5, you guys should know this. We were in the book of James for 17 weeks. We spent 17 weeks in the book of James. James 1.5, and James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should what? Ask who? God. Who? God, right? He's the source of wisdom. And God is expecting us to ask him, to seek him in prayer because he's the source. Say that, say that. He's the source, okay? The right person of wisdom, all wisdom, listen now, all wisdom centers in 
God. So since God is the source of wisdom, then what we need to do is ask him for it. Now notice James doesn't say, let him work for it, earn it, or buy it. Doesn't say that, no. It's not for sale. It's a gift. Say that. It's a gift. He says, if you lack wisdom, just ask God. Then he says this, who gives generously? Who gives generously? In other words, God's wisdom is not limited or scarce. There's no danger of it running in short supply. And friends, he will give to those who seek it liberally. Okay, it's given sincerely. Listen now, it's given clearly and given bountifully. Why? Because by nature, he's, listen, he, God, is a giving God. Say amen to that. Then he says, to all without finding fault. In other words, God doesn't hold our past sins against us. And then he says this, and it will be given to you. You see, fasting and praying, excuse me, in fasting and in praying, Esther had the wisdom, wisdom to know that the timing wasn't right. So she waited one more day. Why? Because timing is everything. You got to get that. Timing is everything. The second lesson is this. Wait on God. Write that down. Say that. Wait on God. The first lesson is ask for wisdom. The second lesson here is wait on God. Write that down. Say that. Wait on God. And I want to say this. God will bless us when we seek him and wait upon him. Not just seeking him, but also, listen now, waiting upon him. Now, we're honest, friends. Listen now. Our biggest one of our biggest struggles, should I say, in life is waiting. We don't like to wait. How many times have we messed things up because we didn't wait? And we miss the blessings and the purpose of God in our lives because we didn't wait on Him. We jumped ahead of Him and we took matters in our own hands. Like Abraham, you know his story, right? He jumped ahead of God. I want you to write this down, Isaiah. If you, if you can, even turn to it. Isaiah 40, 31. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Again, Isaiah 40, 31. I'm going to read it out of the King James. And it says this, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not how awesome is that? So this tells me that it pays to wait. Now, what I want to do real quick here is I want, I, want to, I want to show you four things, four things that happen when you and I wait. The first thing is this. We gain new strength. Write that down. We gain new strength. Look at the passage that I just read to you out of Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall, what? Renew their strength. So we gain new strength when we wait on God, right? The Lord shall renew their strength. Our strength is renewed. God meets our weakness, listen now, with his strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul writes this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses 
so that Christ's power may rest on me. So we first thing is we gain new strength. The second thing is we gain a better perspective. I love this one. We gain a better perspective. Look at the passage. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. So we gain a better perspective. Eagles soar above the normal terrain, right? So they see things, the eagles, they see things from a higher vantage point. In fact, friends, they can spot a fish in a lake several miles away on a clear day. How how amazing is that? So I want you to follow me here and I want you to get this. When we wait on God, we gain a higher or a heavenly perspective. You got to love that. A heavenly perspective on what it is that we're dealing with. So we gain new strength when we wait on God. We gain a better perspective. The third thing is this. We gain extra energy. We gain extra energy. Write that down again. We gain extra, excuse me, extra energy. Look what the passage says. They shall run and not be weary. So we can run spiritually and not get tired. And friends, God supplies us in our time of need with extra energy. Let me ask you this. How many times have you experienced those days where you sense that supernatural energy from God, energy from God to just keep going? I have, and I know that you have as well. So we gain new strength. We gain a better perspective. We gain extra energy. And the fourth thing that happens to us when we wait on God is we gain an extra ability to persevere. Okay? To persevere. Love that. We gain an extra ability to persevere. Look at what the passage says. And they shall walk and not faint. And they shall walk and not faint. We keep on walking. Don't you love this? We keep on fighting and we keep on persevering without fainting. Good place to say amen. When we wait on the Lord, and I love this, he enables us with the ability to endure, to hang in there, to keep on keeping on. And that's what we got to do right now in the midst of this whole COVID-19 pandemic. We got to just keep on keeping on, okay? Keep on keeping on. And you see, while we wait, this allows God to work in our hearts, trusting in Him. It allows Him to work in others' lives, even our enemies' lives, and in the circumstances themselves. So it pays to wait. So Esther waited one more day, right? Because why? Timing is everything. And next week we'll see how God's perfect timing plays out in chapter 6. Point number four, if you're with me, say amen. Point number four is the fury. Write that down, the fury. The fury. And here we see Haman's discontent. Haman's discontent. Write that down, the fury. Look at verse 9 with me. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. I want to stop there. Well, of course, right? He's happy and he's in high spirits because he was invited to two exclusive banquets and no other higher honor could be given 
to any human than eating with the king. So he's on cloud nine, uh, believing the sky's limit of his ambitions, and, and he cannot wait for tomorrow's banquet. And so he heads back to his house. And he, as he heads back to his house, let's read on, let's see what the text says. But, say but, when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither, that he, Mordecai, neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. So Haman goes ballistic, and he, he's crazy with rage. And I want to say this, this but there, the word but here in verse 9 of Mordecai's refusal to acknowledge Haman destroys Haman's happiness. One writer put it like this, Haman couldn't stand the thought of this one man's refusal to obey him. Like a bubble, the more the more an ego swells, the more fragile it becomes. By this point, Haman's ego was so inflated and fragile that Mordecai's action drowned out the applause of the crowd. Those who live like Haman, in deliberate pursuit of self-importance, will live perpetually on Haman's emotional roller coaster, soaring high when honored, bottoming out when not. Haman and all those like him will forever be enslaved to the whims of others. They can never have the security of joy and peace that Jesus promises us in his kingdom. That is so true. Now let's look at verses 12, uh, 10, excuse me, 10 through 12, verses 10 through 12. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and and went home. I'll read that again. This is key. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. So, so I want to stop there. Here we see the hand of God. Say that. Say the hand of God. The hand of God. God is ruling over all and overruling all by restraining Haman from reacting to Mordecai at that moment. Now he could have, he could have, but God restrained Haman. He stopped Haman at that moment. So, so this is a reminder that God, you got to get this, this is a reminder that God restrains the Hamans of this world. Now if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. The enemy and please listen to me, the enemy cannot touch us unless and until God allows it. Did you get that? Unless and until God allows it. And God, would, God will only allow it if it ultimately serves his purpose in the end. Follow me here and listen to me. Okay, get this. God will never allow the devil to do anything to us unless in the end it fulfills his purpose and his plan. A good example of this is Job. Read the book of Job. It's all right there. God allowed the devil to mess with Job's life, and he did it because it fulfilled God's purpose and God's plan. So let's read on. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, verse 11, Haman boasted, to them about his 
vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. Verse 12. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the, the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me, me, along with the king tomorrow. Well, this is a, this is a brag fest. He's bragging. And he's prideful and he's, he's self-absorbed and he had a false reality. He had a false security. He, he boasts in false glory, in false wealth, in false happiness and, and was resting on false confidence. And you see the fact that Haman was invited to this private banquet fed his pride and fed his confidence. And you know what? In his mind, now listen, in his mind, in his mind, both the king and the queen regarded him higher than the rest in his mind. Now, didn't, didn't Haman know, didn't he know that pride comes before destruction? Proverbs 16, 18, Proverbs 16, 18. Or that a man's pride will bring him low. That a man's pride will bring him low. Proverbs 29, 23a, Proverbs 29, 23 a, and didn't he know that pride is number one on God's hate list? Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. Listen, Haman was prideful and Haman was confident that he was set for life when in reality, got to get this, he was just a few hours away from death. One of life's paradoxes is that the way up is often the way down, the way down. And he will learn the truth of Psalm chapter 7, verses 15 through 16. Psalm 7, 15 through 16, concerning the wicked man. And it says this, whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Wow. Wow. Verse 13, if you're still with me, say amen. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. So, so Haman couldn't wait until that date that he could get rid of all the Jews. And, and I want to tell you, Haman, you see, Haman's problem wasn't Mordecai. It wasn't Mordecai, friends. It, it was the emptiness in his own heart. And even, even if, he, if he solved the Mordecai problem, it would not fill the emptiness in his heart. Why? Because the soul was made for God and nothing but God can fill it and make it happy. And you know, I got to tell you, this is an accurate description of how empty the rewards of this world are. And friends, Haman, Haman, excuse me, Haman's deep-seated insecurities and need to be honored by everybody means that he can never be happy. 
Instead of being satisfied, he only became emptier and more dissatisfied. Listen, God meant, and you got to get this, God meant this hunger for satisfaction and acceptance in each of us to be ultimately fulfilled in His Son, Jesus Christ. And He's the only one who can satisfy that hunger and thirst for your soul. And the only one who can fill it and the only one who can fulfill it. Fulfill it. Point number five. The fatal advice. Write that down. The fatal advice. Haman listens to bad advice. The fatal advice. Look at verse 14. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. Now I want to point out that the gallows mentioned here was not for hanging a victim, but for violently killing and displaying the victim. Now, now the gallows were to impale on, not hang on. They were to impale on, not hang on. And so I want to read a description by Adam Clark uh, that's, that describes this impalement. It says, a, a pointed stake is set upright in the ground and the culprit is taken, placed on a sharp point, and then pulled down by his legs till the stake that went in at the fundament passes up through the body and comes out through the neck. A most dreadful species of punishment in which revenge and cruelty may glut the utmost of their malice. This is how evil it was. The culprit lives a considerable time in excruciating agonies. They're still alive, impaled on this pole. And by the way, this is what the Amalekites did to the Israelites. They impaled them on poles. And, and with that being said, we, we, listen, we should never underestimate the destructive and distorting power of hatred. Haman was filled with hatred. So Haman's wife says, kill him. Hang him on a gallows as soon as you can. Hey, great idea, honey. Great idea, honey. I'll show him. And by the way, friends, she was as evil as Haman was. So Haman loved the idea and set it into motion. Now listen, guys. Anytime your wife encourages you to respond in the flesh, that's not God. That's just dumb. That's just dumb. I just want to say that. Now notice that the plot was based on advice from ungodly people. I'm going to say it again. The plot was based on advice from ungodly people. 
it's almost, listen now, always a big, huge mistake to get advice from ungodly people. Now, friends, if you, if you know the end of the story, you know that ungodly plotters plant the seeds of their own destruction. But the main thing here now to notice here is that ungodly plots are ultimately doomed to fail. Got it? And by the way, friends, what, what a contrast, if you stop and think about it, what a contrast between Haman, led by the flesh, and Esther, following and leading, this is now following and leading, uh, following and leading the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You have Haman, led by the flesh, Esther, led by the Holy Spirit. So question, who are you more like, more like? Who are you more like? Haman, who's led by the flesh, or Esther, who's led and follows the Holy Spirit? So as we wrap this up, the message, if you have not gotten it you know, by now, the message from Esther is that the plan of God always succeeds. I'm going to say it again. The plan of God always succeeds. And you see, the, the seemingly invisible God is always invincible. And if God be for us, then who? Then no one can stand against us. And so, as he was working behind the scenes to help Esther, God is working behind the scenes to help you and I. So we should be totally encouraged by that. That no matter what's going on in our life right now, the chaos, we can be rest assured and live with complete assurance that God is working behind the scenes, behind the scenes, to help you and I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the time spent in your word. And Father, give us the wisdom when to move and when not to move, to wait on you, to trust your timing, that we would be reminded that you not only order our steps, but also our stops. And that we would live with the assurance and confidence that you're always working behind the scenes and that your plan always succeeds. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We honor you. We praise you and glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Say amen. Now listen, if you've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, to be your personal Lord and Savior, I want to give you that opportunity to do so right now. You must admit that you are a sinner. You must acknowledge that you need a substitute. And you must, listen now, accept Jesus as Savior. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will, shall, not might, you will, shall be saved. So if you want to be saved today, 
You want to give your life and surrender your life to Jesus Christ so that you will live eternally with him. Be saved from your sins and changed forever. Repeat this prayer. Bow your heads, close your eyes, repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life and to save me and cleanse me and change me. Father, I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you today. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, purchased by the blood of Jesus. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my life. And I will serve you and love you from this day forward. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, we would love to hear from you. So God bless you all. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe. Uh, be good. Be godly. Hate sin. See you next week.